Welcome to the We Wonder Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Schlachter, and this is the podcast where we talk about science, technology, and its impact on society. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to get new episode alerts. We're also on social media. On Twitter and Facebook, you can find us at We Wonder Podcast. You can also shoot us an email at feedback at wewonderpodcast.com. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Also, feel free to send us topic requests, guest requests, or do you know somebody that should be on the show? Let us know. We look forward to it. And now, let's kick things off. All right, guys, episode 11. Super happy to have our guest on today, Mina Hanna. Mina Hanna is super active in shaping our policies and our ethics around artificial intelligence. Uh, He is a co-chair for the IEEE Global Initiative on Ethics in Artificial Intelligence. Uh, IEEE is essentially an an engineering um, standards group that advises um, companies and and everyone on how how we should behave um, in various disciplines. So so this guy is out there uh, working with um, our, our White House, working with our, our congressmen and congresswomen. Uh, he's very active in the United Nations. Um, he's just everywhere affecting uh, AI policy, sort of in the thick of it. So super excited to have him on this conversation with me. Uh, this is also one of the longest episodes we've ever had. It is the longest episode we've ever had, but it's a lot of fun. So hope you stick with it. Hope it's interesting. And uh, we'll kick things off. Mina, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. We've been looking forward to doing this. Um, very excited to talk to you about AI. We've had some great conversations in the past about AI, and I'm looking forward to you continuing those conversations right now. So thanks for joining. Thank you very much, Jason. Uh, this is, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to say this is my this is my privilege, and I'm really excited to be here and having this conversation with you. And uh, and you know, welcome to the audience. Awesome, awesome. So this is really a privilege to have someone like you who is out there uh, at the you know, United Nations events, at the White House events, at the national security events. Um, you know, you have such a, a global perspective on what's happening in AI with policy. You know, I, I see the constant churn of draft documents that you're you're circulating, that you're involved in. Um, you're really a, a voice you know, in this community and, and in, in the, the formulation of policy. So I'm super excited to have you here. I think the listeners are, are going to enjoy this conversation. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. Very excited myself. So uh, Mina has been um, involved in some of the, the White House efforts to find policy. And, and Mina and I were actually just talking about a draft document that the White House has released, which sets principles for how agencies, federal government agencies should be rolling out and leveraging AI, right? Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? And then we'll, we'll jump into sort of like, like some of the principles that are in that document and, and what it means for, for us as Americans and what it means for the world. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we were talking a little earlier about, um, you know, you, you had asked me about the expectation for 2020 and if it's going to be kind of a year full of, uh, you know, announcements and, you know, you know, I guess major events in the space of policymaking or, you know, discussions that will set 
trends and define kind of the, 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 how the business is going to take shape and how the world of AI is going to evolve. And uh, I was telling you that 2019 has been a very, very uh, active year um, and, um, in, in, in so many, on so many levels in major organizations, uh, they were you know, bilateral conversations, multilateral conversations you know, across the globe. Um, in the space uh, of, of you know, the, where people talk about um, defining the ethics, defining the sort of ways how to govern, you know, the, 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 not just the growth of the use of AI and AI, of course, I'm using the word here, you know, cautiously, uh, because AI means a lot of things. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people do try to use the word. Um, in fact, actually, we do that in the Global Initiative uh, on Ethics of AI Systems. It's not artificial intelligence. It's A slash I, autonomous slash intelligent systems. Um, but that's, that's, I'm digressing. Um, what I was going to say is that in the space of the ethics discussions around AI, there has been a ton of events, a ton of declarations, a ton of announcements, a ton of research um, and principles that have come out to the light, essentially. Um, and you know, you can you can count you can count all the principles that have been published by private sector, public sector. But the ones that really stood out and really changed the con- you know, and I want to say change the conversation because all of them have been very impactful. But the ones that have gone to the highest levels of you know of government, um, um, you know. Uh, attention, I suppose, in, in international governments. It's not just the government of the United States, but governments uh, beyond the United States were the OECD principles. There were the OECD principles that eventually were adopted at the G7 meeting in Japan um, and now are becoming or eventually are going to be part of the discussions at the G20 meeting uh, that is going to take place next year in Saudi Arabia. Um, but these were principles that 37... Yep. Yeah, Mina, can you talk about um, OECD, just define it for our viewers? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. It's, uh, the OECD is the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, and it's, it's an organization of uh, the major you know, economies in the world, essentially. Uh, the largest economies in the world, most of them are you know, in, in, you know, in the West, essentially. I think China is not part of the OECD. But it's the largest economies in, in the world, um, in the West, and of course, I think includes Japan, South Korea, uh, several, you know, Asian countries. Um, and, you know, it's the economies of the countries that I think, according to the, you know, to, to, to my understanding of the OECD, um, that share, you know, values around, you know, the democratic values and Republican values and, and, and such. Um, the OECD, when, you know, they publish their, their principles around trustworthy, you know, AI. Uh, as I was saying, uh, it was adopted and became G7 principles, which which is incredible because G7 is a meeting that is very, very visible. And now, as I was saying, it's going to become part of the G20 discussions. Um, 37 countries that were members of that are members of the OECD have, including the United States, have ratified and signed on the principles. And uh, in addition, seven countries that are not members. So that brings it to total 42. And no, it's, I think total <laughs> was 42. So 37 plus seven is not 42. That's 44 for sure. 
I know that. Uh, so it must have been 35 and 7, maybe. Uh, maybe mistaken there. But at any rate, I know more that than, More than 40. <laughs> they, were, they were 42 total. Let's just put it this way. Okay. They were 42 total. Uh, but there are a number of countries that have expressed interest in adopting the, the principle. But anyway, that's a long story short. These principles are, um, you know, they, they they highlight the critical, you know, principles for governing what trustworthy AI could be or might be. You know, focus on safety and security and transparency, um, reducing bias and and, and other things. Um, so so the United States goes and signs on. You know, and they were actually did not. Ju- they were not just signatories. They were actually part of the AIGO, the AI you know group of experts that drafted those principles of the OECD. So the United States government was actually very active in getting those out. Um, so anyway, long story short, you know, you had the OECD principles. You had a lot of activities in uh, the EU level. Uh, with the high-level expert group also publishing recommendations on investments, recommendations on, um, you know, again, their own principles as well that, you know, were very similar to the OECD principles. Um, and uh, you had, uh, um, you know, in the United States, of course, you had an executive order um, by, you know, from the White House, by the president in February 2019, um, that said, here is you know the plan on you know on 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 how we can make the U.S. competitive in in AI in 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 kind of recommended several things you know research and development where we're going to invest how we're going to make data more available for researchers and academics and 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 so on <clears throat> and and one of them was around you know the ethical you know the ethical principles of of AI around safety and security and trustworthiness and so on. Um, and yeah, there's a real need for the United States to assert itself here and to to be a leader in AI policy. I think <clears throat> there's some there's some books out like AI superpowers and and others where you know it, it really it 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 sort of sounds the alarm right like it came out I think that book came out in 2018 but it's it's showing that that our our leadership in AI you know is 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 at risk and and AI is needed for national security and for our economy to continue. And I would say even for democracy to continue to yeah, some degree. For, so, for, you know, for it to be, for the economy to be competitive, of course, this is going to be, as, as you said, you know, a tour de force essentially in, 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 you know, in reinventing several businesses um, that, that mm-hmm. are, you know, that, that are quite, you know, critical, very large chunks of the economy. Uh, supply chains will be, you know, will will will, will change, and um, everything from you know trucking to to aviation to autonomous vehicles to you know enterprise solutions, you know, you will see a lot of a lot of changes, and it's it's obviously a lot of you know economic opportunity as well, right? So, but here's you know, of course, these sort of discussions around competitiveness and where are we, um, you know, where do we measure by comparison to the of course, China is the obvious, you know, contender that uh, is the subject of our competition here in that field. Um, Twenty nineteen has been a very active year of uh, a lot of research and a lot of um, you know expectations and and data, you know, polling data and um, you know doing a lot of comparisons, you know, in, in, in terms of papers that are published, you know, academics, how many businesses, how much money is flowing from the venture capital side, from private equity, from 
private you know, entities investing in their own research, how much government is investing itself. Um, and, and there has been very, you know, very different, very different accounts on how much China itself is investing and if the numbers are blown out of proportion and so on. But that, that is to say that in 2019, there has been a lot of conversation spanning so many fronts and just one front was that AI, you know, race to supremacy, if you will. Um, but, but yeah, that's the thing is that. You know, I mean, there was there was there was just a report that came from um, the uh, from Georgetown uh, about uh, their evaluation of how much the the Chinese government is actually investing in uh, themselves, you know, public money uh, in 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 AI R and D, and they contradicted all you know all the accounts that have been published during the entire year. They said it, the numbers are completely blown out of proportion. They are not. They're not going into you know the right places, you know, or they're going into places that are not going to have the most impact. Most of the impact in China is in you know the the largest private businesses uh, like Baidu and Tencent, um, and it's not mm-hmm. government mm-hmm. money. So anyway, but but here's the good thing. The good thing is that the United States government has been you know focusing on you know. Or maybe let me rephrase that. They have not been. They have not only been focused on you know that AI race thing, or you know trying to, um, you know try drive the narrative or something. They were also focused on the ethical stuff as well. Uh, there was, of course, a lot of conversations in Congress, and we can go a lot of the, into, the, into the details about that in the AI caucus in the House and the Senate and the House Science and Technology Committee, um, and so on. But, you know, the White House has, and that brings us, by the way, you know, full circle. And that's what we started talking about <laughs> at the very beginning right, of the right. call. Uh, they, they now, <laughs> you know, started 2020 with a bang, essentially, right? Um, by publishing the report on, so the question 2019, you know, let's strike back a little. The question 2019 was, you know, where are we investing? How much are we investing and how can we be, you know, how can we make sure that we are competitive? And how are we, you know, so, you know, the White House published reports on AI R&D progress in the United States. Um, they published a report on how much money the federal government has, you know, is going to be investing um, in the upcoming uh, budget. That was just, you know, the appropriation that has been signed into law, um, you know, uh, I think it was last month. Um, you know, the 2019 budget, I'm sorry, the 2020 budget, uh, there was an estimate for how much money, you know, the federal government is investing between the National Science Foundation and, um, um, you know, the NIH and, you know, the other federal labs that, are, that fall under the it's, DOE. It's not, and it's not a lot. <clears throat> it's not a lot of money. It's, uh, the total number it's a lot was, less than you might think. The total number, according to the report, and again, remember this is this was all um, non-defense um, and non-classified research. So there's you know the number that is in the DoD that is invested in AI research in DoD was not in that report, and I expect that's a large chunk. Um, and the classified stuff is obviously not reported. So in non-defense, non-classified research, the number was nine hundred seventy-three million dollars. So you know, you know wanna, I, it's about a billion dollars. Very, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that seems like a very small amount of money to be investing in. You know, probably one of the the greatest discriminators. Uh, you know, where I think we're at this this pivot point for world economies, and and this is the the thing that I think has you know so much you know leverage in that pivot. And um, and I know that a lot of it is invested through the DoD, right? Like I've I've been on the receiving end of a lot of that funding <laughs> from the DoD. Um, so thank you, DoD, for funding my career. Um, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I I also think, and I know a lot of it is private money as well. Um, and I, I've currently yeah. moved away from DoD funding, and I, I actually make real money now um, <laughs> in, uh, in the commercial field. So, <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate that as well. Um, but but on the government side, that that doesn't seem like a ton, right? It seems it's, like a fairly small amount. I, it's a fairly it's a fairly small amount. Um, the, the, see, it, it all depends on how you look at the math and how you look at the the breakdown of the budget, essentially, or the science that is, you know, the, the, the budget that goes into research and development. And it's a very complicated, you know, um, um, it's not, not equation, but kind of kind of kind of a complicated question. If you want to say, well, how much how much is this amount? You know, a billion dollars is this? A lot of money, considering all the money that we invest in all of the R&D programs in the U.S., well, that's that's difficult to answer because you know the the research in 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 you know that is funded is divided by class. You know, there's like basic research, fundamental research, and and then development you know development and application research. There's like six point one. That's like DoD lingo, six point one, six point right, two, right. six point three, and six point four, right? So. Right. You know, they say that if you look at the one billion dollars, right, and it's all going into basic, you know, and fundamental research. This is not money going into development, right? Remember that. Um, that means if you take the entire chunk of six point one and six point two of non-defense, which is, you know, say about eighty, ninety billion dollars, um, you know, it's 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 not actually it's it's probably a lot less than that, but it's it's not it's you know it's an okay percentage. You know, it's not a huge number. I don't think it's a huge number, um, but it's still not a terribly small number either. And a billion dollars in that sense, you know, in federal labs, you know, of course, that's the you know the argument of the of the administration. They say, well, a billion dollars can go, you know, a long way if we're investing just in basic, you know, very novel, very long-term research in that sense. Because of course, you know, the latter stage research and development and applications. You know that's very very well funded by Silicon Valley, right? Um, so that's that's the idea they were saying. If the private sector is already investing a lot there, then we can invest in the areas where they are not investing, which is the basic research, the ten years, you know, prospect kind of research type of research. Um, and just and, and to give you an idea, by the way, the I think you know the entire budget, you know, the entire investment of the U.S. government in R and D. Including all, you know, 6.1, 6.2, 6.3, 6.4, 6.4 um, and non-defense runs in the ballpark of 150 billion dollars. Wow. Well, that's that's interesting to put it in that context. So you're talking about less than one percent of the total research budget going into but, AI. But again, wow. that's research and development. Right, the 150 billion goes into research and development from 6.1 to 6.4. Um, the 1 billion only is basic research or fundamental research. 
Um, so, you know, as, as I was saying, guys, it depends on how you slice the pie. And again, the one billion is non-defense alone. So non-defense is half of the 150 billion. So it depends on how you slice the pie and how we look at the numbers. Uh, but that's, yeah. I think that's and the for- argument of, you know, and, 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 and to finally, you know, to, to make sure that I drive the point home, um, I myself have argued that the number is very low. Um, I, I wrote an op-ed on the Hill, um, and I said the number is, is, is very low, should be, you know, multiples of that. Um, there was a proposal that at a national security uh, commission on AI where Senator Schumer, the minority uh, leader in the Senate, had argued that we should be investing a much larger number in AI, 5G, and quantum uh, quantum computing. And I think he said like something like, I forgot, $25 billion in the next five years, at least. Um, and other, you know, other estimates and other calls said that we should be investing at least $10 billion a year. You know, so the, the, there is an agreement, if you will, um, of, of many who says that you should put more money. Um, I mean, the question I, is I, fiscal. Like, go ahead, go ahead. I like the idea. <clears throat> yeah, I, I like the idea of investing more because I think that when you do invest in 6-1 and 6-2 research, you know, for <clears throat> for our viewers, that's like really, like uh, like Mina said, it's foundational research. You're typically giving that money to universities, right? And so yeah. like when you do invest that money, it's not only about the research you produce. It's about um, it's about funding PhD students. It's about, it's about funding master's students. It's about um, attain, like attracting and retaining the best professors. Um, it's about having money to go to conferences and to share your your work. And I think you're you're growing this this population of of AI experts and researchers that we need, right? And so. Um, and I think just like, uh, you know, there's there's a bunch of studies, I don't know of any offhand to quote, but there's a bunch of studies that show sort of every dollar spent in like foundational science research um, ends up returning like multiples of that investments as those, the, the re- research and the breakthroughs and the staff that's that's being spun up, you know, kind of spreads out through our industry. So, you know, for every you know, rock star AI researcher at Google or Facebook or Amazon or Stanley Black and Decker, <laughs> who's uh, who's being <laughs> um, who has uh, you know come up with with funding through through a university. You know, you could say that that research being is being funded by those companies, but uh, but a lot of that is is initially happening you know with this money. And I um, I'm sure there's some counter arguments that people could come up with, but like I just read today that. The uh, the Mars rover, Mars rover 2020 that we're going to send next year to Mars. Super cool. Huge fan of that. think it's a great use of our money, but it's a $2 billion rover. And, you know, it, if you put that into context, and that's not the cost of, of sending it out there and, and monitoring it. You know, we're our, our 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 national total spend on AI is half of a rover we're sending to Mars, um, <laughs> and I don't I don't <laughs> and uh, I don't want to minimize the rover. I think we should do both, but um, I just think, but that's you know, but that's but it, but you know, keep in mind that's not the cost of the rover; that's the cost of the program, right? I think absolutely. It's not just no, the you're, price you're absolutely of the right. vehicle. Um, it's 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 the so, cost of developing it, right? Yeah. So to your to your point, actually, you brought you, you bring a very good point. Um, 
the 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 and and well i know this is this is a you know a, diver, a diversion or you know we're segueing into something else separate from you know ai um and ai ethics and ai policy but the investments in 6.1 and 6.2 as you said uh, it does it does have a, an roi of several every dollar you put in you have several dollars coming back into the economy and the growth of the gdp of the United States, um, they, they, there are several studies that document that. Um, there are several studies, economic studies, that that say that the that the majority of the economy of the United States since the Second World War has been essentially built on a foundation of research and development. Um, we are an economy of, of you know very very high skilled you know uh, pro, you know product making essentially we're a very very productive economy that you know for over 70 years has been cranking out new products and new tools and new automation and new industries and new science and so on yeah, space and transportation and food and buildings and roads and 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 and, and gadgets and semiconductors and ICs and and enterprise and and all of that all of that was research and development base. I mean, if you look at the the mass of the economy of the United States, it's not it's no longer, you know, today at least, it's no longer, you know, we don't package things anymore. We don't that's all done in China, right? We don't um manufacture, you know, small toys and, and uh you know, small tools and, and, and we don't, you know, you know make the iPhone. You know, we make all the very high-end, ex- very expensive components. You manufacture those here, and then China, you know, puts it all together and assemble it, right? So the very high-end... Right. But it was designed know, in California. It, it's all designed <laughs> in California, right? And the chips exactly. are manufactured in... Well, the chips the chips are manufactured in Taiwan. Let's be very clear. <laughs> TSMC manufactures for Apple. Um, um, but the, anyway, that's a long story. I mean, that's a separate story. But the idea is that, um, you know, every dollar you invest in those areas, you get several dollars back in the GDP. And in fact, um, there are other studies that show that every dollar you put in, you get one point something, maybe 1.5 or something like that, dollars coming from the private sector invested in that research in order to commercialize it, right? Because you build, you know, you, you invest in basic research. Basic research is, you know, very novel new things, you know, new discoveries and new theories and, and new materials and things like that. But in order to mass produce it and scale it and come up with, you know, to commercialize it, essentially, you have to invest in 6.3 and 6.4. And a lot of that money comes from the private sector. So that, you know, amazing tango between the public sector you know, in 6.1, 6.2, and the private sector money that gets invested in commercializing these products, you basically build that amazing ecosystem where, you know, I, I guess the envy of the world in that sense, and it is true, um, you know, and, and, it's, it's, and it's incredible. And as you said, the money is not only invested in just the research. You train, you, 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 you attract talent, you get talent that, you know, you develop talent that would stay in academia to teach the next generations, right? Because you need to, you know, you need to bring up those next generation teachers, essentially. Those were PhD students at some point, and now they were still in the academia so that they can teach later. 
right? To do all of that, you have to put money into all of this. And it's, you know, it's incredible what, what this investment you know, actually also, achieves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think we're also in a little bit of a race. Like I think if you think about like what is the thing that causes society to take action? What is the thing that causes people to focus their efforts and and perform at their best? It's usually being better than somebody else. <laughs> Some kind yeah. of competition, right? And oh, I yeah, think absolutely. that's I think that's really clicked in the last like couple of years. I think there was this period where we were doing AI, we were making progress, uh, it was having an impact. But we were we were far and away the leader in the space, and we felt comfortable in sort of you know continuing to take steps and continuing to make progress. But uh, there was no sort of sense of urgency. And like when I go to AI conferences now, and I'm sure you know you've been to to some where you you know you maybe have seen the same. But like I feel like there's a sense of urgency. I feel like there's 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 a, a leaderboard for for every kind of problem you're trying to solve somebody has built a set of of metrics and tasks that you can go and you can take your latest algorithm and you can run it against and you can see if your algorithm outperforms the other top algorithms and everyone's trying to out publish and, and out predict and so there's this leaderboard and and even at the national and international level you know there's the the big companies like google in america um baidu in china um, you know, Bosch in in Europe, they're all trying to outperform each other. And I think that that's driving this sense of competition, which is pushing us to be faster and better. And I feel like this, you know, even, even though there's still a lot of breakthroughs that need to happen, and, and a lot of this is sort of incremental improvements, not sort of qualitative shifts, I think there is a ton of competition. And then on the other hand, you have this this whole societal thing where everyone's like waking up to the AI and they're like, "Whoa, uh, <laughs> what's happening to our world? Um, it's about to shift under our feet, and let's make sure that we get ahead of our tech, right?" Um, no, yeah, absolutely. That- it, it's it's actually incredible. It's it's really really incredible. If you if you were if you were paying attention, um, if you were an AI researcher and paying attention in you know in 2014, there's there's no way you can conclude that we are now at a markedly different, you know, level of, of, of converse, conversation and rhetoric and global attention and, and even nuns, you know, non-specialized people in AI are, you know, paying attention into the, you know, to the development of AI. Um, and that entire, you know, competition, there are so many factors that, you know, drove us to get to that point where you go, you go to, you know, NeurIPS and and it's it's the, the the attendance is breaking records and the number of papers that are submitted to you know to to uh, to conferences like the the, the, the you know the, the the you know the most seminal you know conferences and public and publications uh, that that cover you know. The, the, all the toolboxes that are under AI, uh, the competition is, is 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 growing, you know, fiercer in the private sector, and everyone wants to hit higher benchmarks, and Google wants to hit the higher benchmarks. The the number of open source tools that are available to you know to the public, the number of you know open open um, uh, op- open source courses online, you know, in APIs and all, and the competition has never been fiercer. Um, 
part of it is geopolitics. Part of it is, you know, a lot of, you know, PR. Part of it is, you know, the the, the high, the high, uh, very high profile scandals of, of, you know, that have plagued um, big tech companies in the last couple of years, frankly. Um, and, you know, all of that is driving not just the race towards, you know, uh, you know, want to call it AI hegemony. Maybe that's China wants to do that. Maybe the U.S. wants to do that. Um, some people, for sure, somewhere in, in, in either China or, or the U.S., of course, they think that they can, um, that, you know, they, they, they can alone be the masters of that technology. Um, of course, you want to you want to be the most prominent and the most competitive. That there's no question, uh, because there are consequences, there are national security concerns, there are you know geopolitical concerns, economic concerns. There's absolutely no question. The question is, you know, it's unlikely that you will be the only player in the field, um, which I think that's kind of an established, you know. Uh, conclusion that there's no way anyone will be the only player in the field it depends on yeah um, you know how you're competing so anyway so there are so many factors that kind of drove that competition question um in the state of competition today and many of these factors also drove you know equally as forcefully uh the questions around ethics and societal consequences um and therefore the governance right so if we go back to the, Nina, to the, yeah. Oh yeah, go ahead. I'll jump in in a minute. Okay. Um, and so if we go back to the, to the stuff that has been published by the white house in 2019, uh, we're kind of, again, trying to circle back 360 here. Um, you know, the executive order, um, uh, you know, the, the report on the, the advancement in AI R and D in the United States, uh, report on how much we're investing in, you know, in the budget and public in, in public R and D, um, in non-defense, non-classified uh, research in, in AI, and you know, a plan for engagement for federal agencies to work with, you know, something like, you know, with NIST to develop standards around AI. All of that happened in 2019. Um, and and that has been you know there was even an update to the AI R and D strategy document uh, that the Obama White House had produced back in 2016. That was the very first document that outlined what should be the strategy of the United States in order to be the most competitive in AI. Right, the White House of the Trump administration had updated it in 2019 and published that. So, you know, you might go back and think, well, 2019 had a lot of action. This is incredible. Well, what are we going to expect then in 2020? And that's the most interesting question right now that people basically, I myself, I can't wait to see what will happen. Um, you know, what will happen next? What are what are we about to see? Mina, I think that, that that's a really, I, I mean, like this idea of, of the amount of positions that were taken in 2019. The amount of of agencies and governments that got involved in AI, the the pulling in into AI discussions of people who were not traditionally involved in those discussions, right? Like there was so much sort of like gravitas pulling people in in this space, and um and to some degree, I think that that AI has uh you know it it's still it's still going to be a while before a lot of these things really come to fruition, right? So it's it's like it's like public public policy is, is and social concern is ramping up a lot of hype in the media there's definitely some 
AI that's directly affecting us today. But but a lot of it really hasn't hit yet. And I, I wanted to comment on a couple things. So like um, you've been you know circulating a lot of documents um, from various organizations in the government, some of which you've been involved in in shaping and and driving. Um, and in particular, you know, we talked about this White House um, draft policy, um, but yeah. I know there's also some national security policies and some Defense Department policies and some academic policies. So I wanted to do something real quick. I wanted to walk through the the ten principles of stewardship um, for AI applications that the White House is calling out, uh, just at a high level, so everybody can follow along and, and understand, you know, what the White House is doing, which I think is great. Uh, they're they're calling out um, uh, public trust in AI as as mm-hmm. key, and these are really meant for federal agencies, right? They should be following these these principles when they implement their own policies. Um, public participation, which is critical, we know that. You know, it's important for everyone to have a voice at the table so that, you know, we're not that, you know, this, the AI could steamroll over people who are who are not, you know, the majority who are, who are edge cases, given the data it was trained on. There's a lot of risk there. Um, scientific integrity and information quality. Uh, we were joking earlier about uh, the government maybe not having the best grasp on information quality, especially on Twitter <laughs> um, and Facebook. And I think that is that is valid. And, um, you know, some of that's created by AIs. Some of that could be controlled by AIs. Uh, but I think that's important. Um, risk assessment and management. So really making sure that as agencies leverage AI, they're assessing the risk it poses and, and making sure they manage that well. Uh, benefits and costs. So, uh, with everything, you know, there's there's potential for for benefit, but there's also costs, and there's a need to consider uh, both of those when they're creating policy. There's uh, flexibility. Um, we should uh, always be pursuing performance based approaches and and not sort of put our heads in the sand. Um, fairness and non discrimination, which I think is super interesting. Um, to our listeners, if you haven't listened to my last podcast, episode 10, check it out. It's with uh, an AI criminologist who is experienced in the ways in which AI is being used to drive criminal justice. And we talk about fairness and, and in that context. And, and what's fascinating is that fairness um, is, is a relative position. It's rare that something is fair to all. And so uh, it's also usually not... Um, uh, it usually also affects accuracy of an algorithm. So that that's a whole other interesting area. Um, disclosure and transparency. Um, transparency is important because if you're not approved for a housing loan or you're not your parole isn't approved or government has uh, targeted you for some action like and it's been done by AI algorithms or those agencies have been advised by AI, you should know why. Um, safety and security, AI should be safe. Uh, don't give it weapons. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, uh, and then interagency coordination. So those things are in the White House um, you know, briefing, and, and these are the policies that the federal agencies should uphold. I think it's all good stuff. But here's where I'm going with this, Mina, because I know that was a bit long-winded. Um, if we look at what um, the 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 uh, national security agencies are looking at, um, things start to look kind of different, um, and and I don't mean wrong; I just mean different because you know these stakeholders have different goals and different um, different views, and and so you know the things that they're that they're focusing on are are, are also different, and so uh, in that perspective, um, 
what I find really interesting is um, they talk about sort of what threats does AI pose, right? And that's that's understandable mm-hmm. as a national um, security agency. Um, they also talk about um, you know the things that uh, that are basic principles to AI, and I think that aligns most closely with the White House version. And so I'm just going to call these out, and then and then let's talk about you know as you talk to the White House and the National Security Agency, and then you also talk to members of Congress. I want to kind of hear you you break down these different perspectives. So on the the national security side, we have uh, global leadership in AI is a national security priority. Um, it's sort of what we talked about earlier, and I would definitely you know agree with that. Um, adopting AI for defense and security purposes is an urgent national imperative. Um, also seems you know pretty pretty obvious to us. Uh, private sector leaders and government officials must build a shared sense of responsibility for the welfare and security of the American people. So that's interesting, right? Like pulling in the private sector. Um, people are still essential. Um, you know, that's temporary, but we'll say that for now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, people are still essential. I do agree with that. I was only being sarcastic. Um, the power of free inquiry must be preserved. So really that's about um, you know, our economy, our knowledge, our ability to, 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 to improve ourselves um, is, is, is contingent upon um, open exchange of ideas, open thoughts. The government should not be impinging upon that even when it comes to sort of national security stuff. Um, and then ethics and strategic necessity are compatible with one another. Um, some people might think they're not, you know. Um, I was doing AI in the defense industry, so, you know, that was something that we talked about frequently. And then this is a really interesting one. The American way of AI must reflect American values. Um, that is, is uh, you know, I, I don't even exactly know how to interpret that, but I, I, I like the way it sounds. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot of different ways you could go with that. So, Mina, let me hand it to you. I know I, I, know I let, dumped a lot out there, um, but maybe just talk about, you know, perspectives and how they differ across all these different stakeholders and maybe even some of your conversations with, you know, congressmen and congresswomen and, and sort of how they slide into these, these different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you just threw me a curveball here. <laughs> there, there, there is, I want, I want know, names uh, and quotes. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot to unpack here. Uh, but, but, you know, ton of interesting stuff, ton of interesting perspectives in, in everything that you have, you know, pointed out to you here. Um, so, you know, let's start with the, with the White House, uh, paper. So the White House paper in, in the absence of, you know, we had talked a lot about what happened in 2019, right? Um, what happened in 2019 was still, you know, we, there was a lot of stuff that came from the executive branch but not from Congress. Um, what came out of, you know, what came out from Congress is um, establishing certain, you know, agencies or certain offices in the executive branch um, to, you know, to, to start tackling these sort of questions. Um, so, you know, in 2018, there was uh, uh, the law that passed, you know, part of the, of the, of the defense uh, authorization bill to establish the National Security Commission on AI, right? That's the report that you were quoting. The second report that you were quoting, that was the interim report of the National Security Commission on AI 
to Congress on the national security concerns related to AI, right? So that's that's just looking and evaluating all of the AI concerns to national security of the United States. Um, broadly defined, again, what do you mean, you know, what's under national security? Intelligence, geopolitical relationships, you know, even, even threats to the economy, all of these are national security concerns. Uh, national security concerns to the safety of, of people and, and the free exercise of democracy and, and, you know, upholding the Constitution, all of these are national security concerns, right? Um, Congress also, you know, established uh, the, the Jake, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center and the DOD, right? Um, they have passed appropriations, as we were talking about, um, you know, the 2019 budget and the 2020 budget that was just signed into law in December, um, you know, appropriating, you know, the billion dollars or so that we talked about to various activities of AI research and development um, in, in, um, in, in the federal government, right? And 6.1 and 6.2, like we talked about. But here's the thing. In Congress, there, was, there, there are several proposals for laws that have not gained enough traction to actually be passed, either in the House or the Senate, uh, let alone both of them. Um, for you know various reasons, that's politics. Let's not talk about that for now. Um, but there were proposals around, you know, the 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 very famous ones, I suppose. There was you know um, a proposal both in the House and the Senate on writing you know a legislation, or, or it's actually been written and it's been revised, and it's a long story, but uh, a law around. Writing a uh, uh, devising a national security, uh, not national security, I'm sorry, national strategy for AI, right? Um, that you know is still ongoing. There was another bill uh, that was proposed um, by Congressman uh, Wyden in from Oregon. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Senator Wyden from Oregon um, on AI accountability. There was another bill that was proposed as well, I think, by by Senator Schatz from Hawaii on uh, the use of AI in government. And, so, and, and, and these are among the examples that, that were in Congress. Uh, point is that none of these laws really, you know, gained traction and they haven't passed. Uh, obviously, there was activities by the AI caucus, of course, which we support. Uh, and so most of the things that actually happened were driven by the executive branch. So with that, you know, background in mind and, you know, drawing on what we had talked about earlier, about the various reports and you know the executive order by the president and so on, here comes the question of governance. Right? We talked about developing standards and the federal you know plan for uh, the federal agencies to engage in in standards. There's always been the pressing question about governance and ethical questions, and people were saying, well, how are we going to do that? There were, you know, various proposals in Congress as well as I mentioned. One of them was the AI accountability, and people, including you know me, of course, I hold the opinion that we have to have regulatory action. The question is how we can regulate. You know, AI is very difficult. AI is not one set of tools. Is it's not you know in one sector. It's not in one business segment. It's not in a in a specific you know vertical. It's very pervasive. It's it's very horizontal, right? And so people essentially, you know, obviously where, where we are today, we've come to the conclusion that knowing that the governance question of, of AI is very difficult and knowing that we need to do regulations, 
there had to be a leadership position that the White House would take in order to advise on how these regulatory measures should be devised, right? So, and that is the first document that you were quoting, which is a guidance memorandum from the White House on guiding federal agencies who are going to set themselves to go and, and, and create regulations, to promulgate regulations, essentially, right? Usually what happens is Congress passes a law, and then they say, okay, that federal agency where the law, you know, that has jurisdiction on that specific part of the law, you know, we pass the law, you go ahead and promulgate regulations, right? There's no congressional, you know, legislation that is asking federal regulations to regulate right now. And so, but the White House is saying, when you're going to regulate, go ahead and make sure that those regulations meet these criteria, those 10 criteria that you have outlined, right? And they enumerated them. Um, many of them actually are quite, you know, not unexpected because, you know, the process of, regu of regulating um, usually follows the same standard procedure. Where, for example, um, one, one principal said that the process of creating regulations has to be open and the public should participate in it. I think that's principle number four, was it? Um, or number three or something. Uh, regardless, that is a process that is you know, quite usual. What happens is when a federal agency decides that they want to put uh, a regulation in, you know, and they want to draft it, they put an announcement for you know, a request for comment on the federal register, and they ask and anyone in the, within, you know, in the United States uh, whomever they represent, whatever they come from, to weigh in with their opinion and say, you know, what do you think about that? So if you have a proposed, you know, an out, you know, proposed rulemaking or, um, you know, or a regulatory, you know, language, you put it on the federal register and you ask for people to comment. And that ha happened, you know, with net neutrality and any regulation, essentially. Um so, so that's you know that's the that's the part about you know public participation, which is extremely important because it makes sure that all the stakeholders from various backgrounds are involved in that process and they are weighing in with their opinion, which is so extremely important value you know uh, very valuable principle here. Another principle is you know making sure that the federal agencies are coordinating, and that is a role of you know interagency you know bodies. Um, you know, that already actually do exist that, you know, that, that tries to, you know, um, make sure that the different activities are not crossing boundaries and they are all going in harmony and we're not redoing the work, essentially, um, you know, like in the activities of, of cybersecurity and coordinating cybersecurity policy um, and research and AI, um, you know, as well. There's, there's that agency that coordinates between the federal federal agencies that do research in AI. Um, so these are kind of, you know, vanilla principles. The ones that are important here, they, they clearly focus on the ethical principles that have been outlined in the past by the OECD, the high-level expert group, various NGOs, the IEEE, every, and every other body, even private sector organizations, that said, we have to prioritize safety and security of, of these tools, meaning that there has to be, you know, tools to make sure that a product that uses automated decision systems is is vetted, has done, has been, has gone through the proper, you know, validations, 
uh, and testing, right? Like VVT and eTools, you know, like in the lingo of the of the of the of the folks who work in the in the field, um, they have you know tested on several benchmarks and and so on. Basically, they have to prove that they have done the proper testing and and and, and, val- and validation and, and evaluations. And you know that's that's obviously something that you know these are these are not that's 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 you know these are requirements uh, like how the FAA for example requires or NHTSA for example for for vehicles require cars to go and meet certain checks or airplanes to go through you know validations and so on and testing so that's very important transparency and disclosure very critical as well because you want to know when the businesses are you know dealing with your data or if they are involved, let's say, and that's when that's where it gets you know complicated with the societal consequences, right? Um, if you have automated systems, right, that are used in areas that are making you know life or like actually like literally life or death decisions, right? Um, diagnostics, you know, diagnostic tools, for example, that have to be cleared by the FDA. That 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 you know does you know scans or or monitors your your heart rate or regulates your um uh your your heart regulator and and and, and you know other devices like that um, they have to be you know they have to be they have to be just meeting the highest standards of of operation to make sure that they are giving you the right information right and monitoring your health. You know accurately and correctly, and giving then the right information to your doctor so they can follow through on your medical care. Um, the same thing for autonomous vehicles, obviously. And in cases where these systems are being used in criminal justice, so I'm referencing, you know, for the second time, your, you know, the the episode that you have referred to yourself. Um, if you're using automated decision making systems to uh, evaluate uh, criminal recidivism. And I'm sure you have covered that in the previous episode. Um, or deciding on bail or deciding you know, on, on you know, sentences, right? These are decisions that are quite critical for people because, because they decide on almost on their oppor- you know, opportunity, whether they are able to go back to society or, or you know, and, they decide. They decide on you know, I mean, you know, if the decision is related to a sentence or bail, that's you know almost life or death you know decision too because because it means if you're going to be able to come back to society and have the same opportunity as someone who you know who you know who has not gone through the same circumstances. Um, so Mina, so, we talk a little bit about that, like, and it's and it's out there now, like uh, like Pennsylvania is currently using AI to advise uh, their parole officers or, or their parole boards on whether somebody should be let go. And, um, and they've done some studies on it, and they find that uh, when they look at, at, at re-arrest rates, um, that it improves overall parole decisions, meaning that when they use AI in that experimental condition, they find that uh, there are less uh, re-arrests from that population. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's fair, right? It doesn't mean that it's doing it, it fairly. It, it, it can it still be overall. It, go ahead. It doesn't. It doesn't mean it's fair, uh, and it doesn't mean in in other cases that it's accurate, right? Because that's, you know the case. Right. 
Yeah. So and it's a black box too. There's exactly, precisely. That's 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 a key word here, Um, because you know the classical case, and you know you may have talked about it or not, but the classical case of you know criminal recidivism and using AI in courts was uh, Loomis v. Wisconsin, Um, the case of you know deciding on somebody's sentence, that gentleman Loomis, the defendant, in a court in Wisconsin. Um, uh, the problem really here very, very quickly, essentially, was that there is a system that is a black box deciding on, you know, providing recommendation for how many years the gentleman should be in jail in order to reduce the likelihood that they would go back to crime after they finish their sentence. Um, a private sector, a private entity is providing that software, uh, Compass, it was called Compass, and you don't know, and essentially what happened was that the defendant got, you know, a recommendation on sentence. Um, He wanted to challenge that system. He said, how did the system come up with its determination based on what, you know, variables? Um, And the problem essentially, you know, it became quite problematic because, the company said, well, my system is protected under IPR, IP protection, uh, IP rights. And I cannot tell you how my system, you know, decided and gave its recommendation. So now essentially one of the actual issues in in the ethics of AI and the governance of AI is that um, uh, the conflict between openness and requiring the tools to be transparent. I mean, there's already the technical problem, which you have alluded to that in order to make the tools explainable, that takes away, you know, from its fairness, right? There's a push and pull in, in that. Um, and there's also the legal argument, which is if I want to know how you made that decision, show me, you know, open up the software basically and tell me how you did that, right? Uh, that, you know, voids intellectual property rights. That's that We could do a whole episode on that. Um, and we can yeah, argue and, about that and tell you how the how the how the case you know <laughs> have moved forward, but you know we'll leave it at that. So, uh, you know, I'll just say one thing on that, which uh, explainable AI is a whole field, a whole area of AI study, and it really just says that you know a lot of AI models are are mathematical in nature, and a lot of them are, are probabilistic in nature, and they're so complex at times that. Uh, some models can be really difficult to understand you know how how it arrived at a decision how it made a prediction um and um it's like trying to crack open a brain and trying to figure out which neurons fired and and why does that ultimately end up in some some action that a person took and so uh so there are programs trying to do explainable by ai but it you know it it, it sometimes means that you're less accurate right and i think that's the 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 trade-off that we are struggling with like Imagine that you could build a system using AI that would make parole decisions or, or help you make parole decisions, and and it makes really good parole decisions, but you have no idea how it's working. It's a black box. Um, and then the alternative is, you know, you can use a different approach that allows it to be more transparent and and it's able to explain itself. Um, but in order to do that, it needs to be less complex as a model it needs to use a different approach it, yeah. it so, therefore you're you're making worse decisions 
uh, but you're explainable. And I think that's the trade-off we've been struggling with. And a lot of people in this field have been saying, how can we close that gap so that we can make as good decisions, as accurate decisions, and be explainable? So it's definitely an open research question. There's no question about the fact that this is this is going to involve a lot of research um, in in order to rethink the process of learning and inference in neural networks. Um, that system used, you know, a deep learning model. I think I, I don't know that for sure, um, but deep learning itself is very is too complicated as you know any neural network. You know, deep learning right now involves uh, you know several hundred you know layers. <coughs> Sorry, I was trying to uh, reduce the noise there when I was coughing. Uh, but but you know a, a, an incredible number of layers in in a, in a neural network, um, and what you do you also have an additional complexity of backpropagation, and and you know that complicates complicates the problem of understanding what happened during the learning process, um, let alone and and in, and then in the inference process as well, right? Um, it's not it's not an easy easy thing to do but but here's 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 the here's here's another point though there is a technical difficulty but then there is also the the decisions that that company that developed compass um took that were more you know i don't want to say you know maybe maybe i'll say you know more 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 you know more problematic or you know ominous uh, because they have you know how they decided to train their model they have used you know derivative variables that were very very good at predicting that that person was Loomis the defendant was was an African American right and that's mm. and that opens yeah. you know cracks open the issue of bias because they use derivative variables that were very very good in combination together. Very, very good at predicting that that person, with a very high degree of certainty, that person was an African American, um, uh, you know, the subject of the case. Uh, so the like, use, for example, like you're saying, even if they don't explicitly use those variables, you're saying that like the the sort of the other variables, like so, it wouldn't explicitly say, you know, this person is African American, but the other variables as a whole, you could you could strongly infer that. That's what you're driving at. Exactly. So they did not have to know that he was African American, right? They used variables that were almost certain to predict that that person is is, you know, African American or white American, right? Like variable like uh, zip code, and obviously, you know, the history of America was you know redlining and and, and gentrification and so on. You can, you know, look at a map of any city and you can, you know, more or less tell, okay, that is a historically black, you know, community, um, you know, or, or, or that's a historically white community and so on, right? So if you look at zip code and I think it was maybe income level or something like that, you know, both of them together almost, you know, decidedly predicted that that person is African-American. And however the system came you know, to its determination. Compass was shown, I think, 
um, that it, it, it gave, you know, a higher sentence. And that was the, the subject of, you know, of the challenge, right? That the defendant had, you know, uh, depended on in his argument. He said that with African-Americans, the sentence is longer, but with white Americans on average, the sentence is shorter. So what happened here? Why is there, you know, that disparity in, 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 in the decision? Um, and so obviously that opened the question of bias, right? And bias is clearly one of the, one of the biggest problems of, you know, in AI ethics. Broadly, in, in, you know, in the U.S. or any society, really, um, it seems that our, you know, our ethics conversations and discussions and debates have pointed out to, you know, an aspect that is very, very ominous and very, you know, dark about the use of AI and automated data collection is that it really shows, you know, I think, I think the, prof- the philosopher Daniel Dennett, I think he actually, um, I, I like that, that, you know, description that he uses when he describes AI. He says AI is a parasite, uh, meaning <laughs> that, you know, meaning, and he's actually quite accurate. You know, in, in saying that he doesn't he doesn't mean that as a you know a living organism like a parasite. He says that the behavior of AI is parasitic, and if you don't know what parasitic means, it just means that it lives off of another org- organism, and that's true because AI in general, you know, philosophically speaking, doesn't have a determination or a conscience or an intent of its own. It's not a living entity on its own. It's not independent. It just looks at our society's structure. It's like a mirror, right? And reflects it. And in many cases, it doubles down on our failures and our shortcomings, right? It takes you know, our Mino, interesting. bad predispositions. Um, sorry to cut you off, but 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 it takes our worst predispositions and inflates it. And in many cases, the decisions like in criminal recidivism. Or you know decisions to to show women you know ads for certain you know employments uh, uh, you know employment opportunities that are stereotypical of you know that you know that are chauvinistic in nature let's say um, you know showing women ads for secretarial work on Facebook that was an actual case and showing men you know other higher paying jobs because you know men are reflecting the stereotype that women would not be suitable for this type of job, which is obviously not true. Well, uh, right. And, and Mina, that that's data-based and that's, and that's the interesting part of, of what you're saying, which is, you know, women are seeing ads for secretarial work, not because some guy thought, Hey, I'll show this woman a secretarial ad, right? They're being shown ads for secretarial work because the AI system has most likely learned that it's, it's most effective at at getting clicks at 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 capturing revenue when it shows women ads for secretarial work and it's and so it's it's this ai is is learning from how we treat each other and how our historical data looks and and it's and it's perpetuating that because that's what it learns how to do so it's 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 our it like you said it's it's um it's it's internalizing our data and i I said this during our last episode. I think what's 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 really at heart here is that there's this distributed process that we do as people um, that gets centralized through AI, and and that's one of the challenges, right? Um, 
when the AI sort of takes all this data, centralizes it, and then it becomes this, this central decision-making entity um, that 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 kind of lives on. Um, and so, so it, 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 it's, it, we have to be careful what, what we, what we sort of canonize in this, in this, you know, central algorithm. Um, you know, previously it, it took. Exactly. Because, yeah. and, that's, and that's why, and that's why Daniel Dennett is right in that respect. He says its behavior is parasitic because it learns from observing what we do, right? The data shows that, you know, by not by majority, but but you know, looking at historical data, right? That women have been doing, you know, more uh, present more represented in secretarial work, um, and men were represented in other, you know, jobs, right? Um, these stereotypes that have lived, you know, on forever, that men are more macho and they do, you know, they they do work that requires more, you know, physical abilities and so on. Women do other things, um, you know, and, and, and so on. Of course, it, you know, AI just learns from what it sees, and that's why it just shows the sort of, you know, disparity in the data. But, you know, hey, to Mina, get is there to... something? <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah, let, let's stick with this for a second, because I, I want to ask a couple questions. Is there something foundational in the way that AI is set up uh, it, that, that, that will, will sort of always you know, fall short of, of how we as a society, you know, strive to be better than we currently are. Like, in the, it, I think this captures the heart of it, right? Like, like we, we know that, that secretaries, you know, are mostly women. We know that, that there's, you know, an assumption that, that this is how, you know, it will, it, it will be, or it could be. But we also, as a society, distinct from our, the existing situation distinct from our historical data, we want to be better. We want to say, Hey, women can do anything they want. They don't need to be just secretaries and men. If you want to be secretaries as well, like that's a valid career. Uh, we, we want to say that, but, um, but almost by, by its nature, I, I wonder just sort of philosophically whether AI is sort of not conducive to that. I, I wonder what that means for us as a society, as we, we do integrate AI into more of these decisions. So I mean that's I mean that's that's kind of that's actually a very great question because because but the answer is very short. Uh, we have AI <laughs> the AI itself has not you know found its own it doesn't have a morality or a sense of purpose. Um, it's not a, a creature of you know it's a creature of of the data that it does absorb. And so if it's looking at you know job descriptions online. Right, databases of job descriptions, and it looks, you know, it finds an article, you know, she, and then it finds it more common with a job description of, you know, secretarial work or domestic work or something like that. It will create these sort of relationships from observing, you know, these associations essentially, right? Um, now, AI doesn't have its own morality, and in fact, the ethic, the discussion on ethics of AI, at some point, I think not at some point, but, you know, within that space, people, you know, some people are trying to take it even further where they are thinking, can we bake in more laws or more rules into AI itself, right? But, you know, as someone who, who has practiced and worked with AI or machine learning in general, you know, that's it just, you know, statistical, you know, inferences. It doesn't have, you know, a way, you know, Leibniz or, 
or or uh, um, you know the, the 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 kind of the Enlightenment era 1600 mathematical you know foundations uh, that we today use you know that that the you know Bayesian uh, inferences and so on all of these have are not theories that encompass you know the a moral code right how can you code morality into a system like that you don't even have the mathematics for that right that's kind of the short answer of course the the broader answer is that we as a society know what are the right you know norms and we know you know collectively what is right and what is from you know what is right and what is wrong and we can discern that right and that's why when decisions are going to be made and they are you know bad decisions Right and like facial recognition, um, and that that for example, you know, is not as accurate with white male, you know, images versus you know African American female images are much less accurate uh, because the data you know is not is not there, it's not abundant, and it's not properly labeled and so on. Right, that's why you always have to have this you know conscionability and purpose, and you have to be aware that. You know, it's it's not um, you know decisions that AI makes are not are not to be canon. They are not you know infallible like the Pope, right? They are not decisions that are hundred percent true because when you know that they make decisions or are you know systems that make decisions for giving you a loan or or deciding criminal recidivism or showing you the opportunity or even today are used in HR. I mean, this is kind of the latest trend now. That you see, you know, reports on the misuse of AI in HR decisions. Instead of doing an interview with a human who can, you know, sense, who has like an ability to empathize or sympathize with someone who is, you know, nervous or something. No, now we have a camera that looks at, you know, your facial cues and decides that, okay, that person is too nervous, that person is too whatever. Of course, there are plenty of cases, not cases, but Plenty of opportunities for bias because you could be interviewing an immigrant who doesn't have a perfect community you know, of English. You can have someone with a different Nina, accent. Yeah. Let me give you a great example of this. Like this is a real world example and I'll obviously anonymize it a little bit. Uh, but I was approached by, uh, by an innovation uh, director at a, a large company, um, company that has many stores across the country and uh, was asked uh you know what was told that one of the challenges we have is is with customer service. We have problems with people being you know pleasant <laughs> with the customers, um, with people um, you know like you know smiling and 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 being gregarious and essentially you know just just treating people right the way that you know they would if you went to you know Chick Fil A or something. <laughs> In my mind, Chick Fil A is like the the epitome, the epitome. of. Uh, of <laughs> Of like like professional friendly you know you know mission service right it's just like it's really it's really nice and so uh, so this com- and it wasn't Chick Fil A but it was another company asking about how we could do this and so at first I was like you know this is really fun like we could we could have a camera that would watch your employees as they interact with customers and we could look at their emotions by breaking down you know their their facial you know movements and their smiles. We could also analyze their voice and we could do it not only for sentiment in, in tone, like are they speaking friendly and nice and with, with positive tone, but also the content, like what words are they using and what's their body language? It's, there's, there's companies out there that will 
map people's body language and, and, and we can associate that. We could train it to, to understand sort of, you know, friendly versus unfriendly body language. And I was like, we could just stop, put like a little, a little bar in front of the employee that, you know, when they're, when they're smiley and happy, it's, it's green. And when they're kind of like neutral or moving into negative territory, it turns orange. And when they're in the red, you know, the system sees them as unfriendly. And at first I was like, this would be so awesome when we could totally do it. Um, and then I had two, two sort of afterthoughts and concerns. Um, and the first one was what you brought up, which is that this is not going to work equally well for everybody. There's, there's, yeah. there's racial and ethnic differences in the way people look. And, and there's, there's definitely going to be some kind of bias in the way these algorithms work. There's also going to be cultural norms that are different. You know, the way that like an Indian person, you know, fresh from India is going to kind of shake their head differently than an American would. And, you know, there's, there's other kinds of cultural norms that would, that would vary. And, and then the second thing I thought about was like, you know, do we want to do this to our, to our workers? Like, is this going to make them just kind of like miserable automatons that, that, you know, endlessly smile because we'll tie their bonus to how much time they spend in the green. So, you know, spend most of your time in the green and you make 20 bucks an hour. You know, if you're, if you're in the yellow a bunch, you know, you make 15 and if you're in the red, you're not working at all. Right. And so it, it sort of seemed a little dystopian. So I, I kind of abandoned that idea. There was uh, the company uh, that there was, there was a comp- a startup that approached me as well. Funny enough that you're mentioning that, <laughs> Uh, a startup that uh, had approached me, they wanted to use the same, you know, idea. Um, it was just voice. It was not going to be uh, facial analysis. Uh, just voice, you know, good old fa- voice recognition, uh, judging the the tone, enthusiasm, and you know whether they are hostile or any of that. Um, you know, just just trying to see their emotional status essentially. And um, you can imagine these people, they're going to be like, welcome to Wally world with like such no, a, no, 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 hold, hold. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, hold on. They, you know what they wanted to do, which I thought, oh my God, this is extremely just nefarious. Uh, they wanted to do it for, for a, you know, for, for positive reinforcement, like, you know, the example you mentioned, um, you know, to, to give feedback to the employees uh, but here's here's the use case that they wanted to deploy it in. They wanted to use it for uh, people who canvass, uh, who work on political campaigns. You know, the volunteers that you know, you pick a bunch of volunteers. You're running for office. You get a vol- you know, a bunch of volunteers who canvass. You know, the, around the block, right? And mm-hmm. um, you have tools today that tells you this is a house that usually votes, you know, one way or another, Democrat or Republican. And, you know, it tells you, go knock on that house, talk to them about, you know, the next Democratic candidate for president, let's say, right? And they are listening to the conversation or the tool in the background is listening on the conversation and listening not just on me, the volunteer, how I am conducting myself, not just that, right? Which you think this is like, you know, level zero of the application, you know? If you want to listen to that and make, you know, pass a judgment on how professional and cordial and accurate and how did I stick to the message of the candidate, that all is completely fine, right? I mean, not fine. It's, again, difficult depending on maybe if you're from the South or the North or, 
your accent might be different or you have a you know social and um, and, and and you know norms that, that vary uh, but they also were listening on the other person that you're convincing to vote for your candidate right the person who is in their house on their own property right is that are is that even to, legal like is the, i don't think i, mean, that's I know legal. in some states yeah like in some states i think i think no, in no, georgia no, listen, uh, listen 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 okay listen, okay yeah because, go ahead because, <laughs> because that application uh-huh. was analyzing the 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 how they are responding to your message right and using it to judge two things to judge your performance as a canvasser right if you're a volunteer and you're you know turns out that you're doing a you know a lousy job um they they would you know fire you the next day let's say because that other person didn't. fired from your volunteer job that's harsh <laughs> yeah, from, <laughs> I mean you get like minimum wage or like fifteen bucks an hour or something like that uh, okay uh, that's okay. not minimum wage but you know you get some money you know working on campaigns you still volunteer but okay yeah but but right. it gives feedback on your performance based on how that other person received your message. And how they either reciprocated or reacted to you enthusiastically or not, and but not just that, it also uses this information to try to help the candidate tune the message in order to hit the areas where they find like okay, I I know those voters are going to react to that, you know, to that thing, so I want to hammer on that point, right? But now I don't even know that's legal. <laughs> and apparently the startup, you know, they did, you know, they, they had a legal counsel team. They looked at state laws and apparently they said, as long as you can, you know, there, there are states that require you disclosing that you're recording, which if you do, pretty sure 90% of the, of the people you'll knock on their door, you know, will tell you, get the hell out of my face. You know, I don't want to, you know, authorize you to, to record me on this conversation. And there are states that actually do not require you to to disclose as long as it's only voice. And I thought, so oh Mina, my God, in this Georgia, is you don't in Georgia you don't have to disclose uh, as long as one. I, I believe this is true. Um, you know, at least if one party knows, right? Exactly. If anyone listening is yes. uh, can tell me this is false, then then send me send me a message. And let me know. But I I believe in Georgia at least as long as one party knows. It's okay, and personally, I think that's how it should be. I think that that not having the right to record my own conversation, you know, would bother me. But I think that obviously that's horrible from a, a political perspective. Like, can you imagine the political fallout? Like, if if one of the campaigns were were using this and it and it leaked, of course it's going to leak, right? Like, it's obviously yeah. going to be in the press at some point. I mean, the just the damage to to the the integrity of that candidate would just, it just seems like it would overshadow any gains they would get. No, um, I was, I thought, I thought that was insane. I mean, if, if, if that becomes, if that becomes a, you know, a, a typical practice and let's say you ended up knocking on the door of, you know, someone that does not endorse your candidate, let's say, and, you know, who knows? Maybe they will try to drag you into a conversation to say something, you know, about that other candidate or sort of, you know, banter and, and talking, you know, uh, about other candidates. It, it, it can create, a, you know, a tremendous amount of problems 
And I don't know if yeah. people would not have, if you don't have the security that no one is listening on you, on your own property, you know, your own home, uh, would people be comfortable talking to canvassers and volunteers from now on? Or, I mean, that might not be, you know, something that people would, would, would welcome, you know, if they know that you're well, recording their conversation. <laughs> Mina, there's two big problems here too. One of them is that, you know, in the old days, you might you might lug around a uh, recorder and and record that conversation, and and one, it would be obvious to the person that it was happening, and they could <laughs> they could comment on it. And two, you would just have a box full of tapes that nobody would ever listen to. And I think the combination <laughs> of AI, right, right, like it would yeah, just yeah. have this massive box of tapes, and people would be like, "Why did we do this?" Now, the ability to auto transcribe these recordings, assess you know emotional state and response. And then easily search through them and gather intelligence. Um, it's a whole different ballgame. And and then I think on top of you know all of that, you're I mean you're you're just I think there, we talked about this before, Mina. But there's there's a big gap between what's legal and what's ethical, what's ethical? and what sort of and also what sort of is good citizenship and and sort of good behavior you know and mm-hmm. and i think there there's a continuum there so for for a startup you know to say that it's it's not illegal <laughs> doesn't make it ethical uh and even if you said it's ethical that doesn't make it <laughs> the right the right thing to do um exactly so so the, gonna, action, the, yeah. uh, the, the <laughs> other level i mean we're we're beating this that story into the ground <laughs> but you know to, yeah. to move on to greener pastures here's the last thing that i <laughs> one, that i remember uh they were telling me about there was another level of deployment that uh they wanted to to do eventually when they get you know you know good enough if you will um they would do on the fly you know audio analysis Right. So what we talked about earlier was we're going to transcribe, you know, the audio post the fact we're going to analyze, you know, emotional, you know, cues and sentiment and so on and see if the canvasser is doing well. If the, you know, the potential voter, they receive the message well, you can tune the message and so on. But they also want to do it on the fly, too. So you have Alexa listening in the background. Let's say it's Alexa. but Of course, it's a different tool. Um, and the canvasser has like an you know an, an, an earbud in his you know plugged in, and it's giving him feedback on the fly, right? So he talks about something, and all of a sudden, you know, you know the 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 the, the potential voter says something says something in return, and it looks like uh, they are not you know too sure, they are not too responsive. The earbud is telling you on the fly, move on, talk to the other, talk about something else. Right. Or, you know, they you know, they do the analysis and they say, OK, talk about that other point, because we know that, you know, that person fits a specific profile. And that's and by the way, that's that's the larger problematic issue with, you know, AI and personality analysis, by the way. You know, if, if you you know, if you forget about that specific application that companies that, um, you know, are recommending things that you should buy, right? Using recommender systems, you know, for things that you should buy or movies that you should watch or content that you should, you know, like or share or watch, YouTube, Facebook, Amazon, Google, anything. They all are trying to, you know, box you within a certain, you know, 
personality or expectation or something, right? Like the voice analysis here, they were like, well, the camp of voters basically is divided into three, independents, Democrats, and Republicans. And if you want to get some more granularity, you can divide them, you know, the maximum, you can divide, you know, the, the, the public are probably seven categories, hardline, you know, right, hardline, left, independent, somebody in the middle, somebody <clears throat> middle, right, middle, left. That's, that's seven categories, right? You're just trying to box someone. So imagine, I'm pretty sure that in the background of, of, of building that software, right? They were saying, well, our goal here, because, because that's, that's what machine learning is. Machine learning is two, two things, you know, very, very coarsely, right? And you obviously know that. In statistics, you know, or in, machi in statistical machine, uh, uh, you know, machine learning, you either do regressions, right? That's unsupervised learning, right? And you want to find a trend or, um, you know, you want to find, um, you know, you want to find a trend or like data analytics. That's like unsupervised learning. That's one class of machine learning. And then supervised learning, you know, that, that would be used for classification, right? Like, you know, uh, you see, you know, you train the model on a thousand or a hundred, you know, you know, a million images of, um, you know, what a, you know, a monkey would look like, a specific breed. And then you do, Im you know, reverse image analysis, and then it classifies, okay, that photo is a monkey. We recognize that photo is a monkey, right? That's classification. So classification in that sense, that's what that tool, you know, the, the canvasser analysis, an emotional analysis tool for canvassers was going to do. It was going to classify that potential voter as hardline Democrat, hardline Republican, or independent, or middle of the road right, middle of the road left. It's just classifying that person. Netflix tries to classify you as someone who likes that genre. Um, Amazon tries well, to classify what, I, as you liking these tools. The problem is that you're trying yeah, think, to build all of these classification profiles that might be very inaccurate. Yeah, I think the key here is, and I, I would just just clarify that, uh, like like regression uh, uh, is is also supervised, and I think it's 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 more about. Um, you know, assigning a value, uh, and I think I think what you're getting at with the classification is is really that you know there's there's a predetermined set of categories that you can be put into. That's that's the big piece that you're driving at, right? And so, yeah. whoever has predetermined these categories that you can fall into, you know, that's there's 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 power there, and they're and they're going to put you in one of these categories, and then once you're in the category, you're gonna you're gonna be beholden to whatever you know predictive responses the system thinks uh you know should be taken or or whatever playbook you know even if it's sort of a manual playbook that that group or agency has put together i'm wondering mina if if we have to kind of like you know randomly say insane stuff or like go on go on amazon and and purchase stuff that you know you would never purchase like just to kind of break free of <laughs> of those classifications like uh, the classification, you know, can't figure out why I bought a wood burning stove. Like, I, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Like, and it, and then it kind of like short circuit, and then I'm free from from you know all all sales ads. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm, I'm I don't yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid if you're <laughs> I'm afraid if 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 that's what you know if that's what actually you know really do it because you know, it's, not, <laughs> it's not what you buy; it's also what you browse. It's also what you, you add to your wish list. It's also, you know, all the other subsidiaries of Amazon. 
that you use, they also share that information with, you know, because they're all Amazon, um, you know, and you have like Facebook, for example, Facebook, it's not the amount of time or what you browse on Facebook. Facebook has web beacons in all of the websites that have, you know, a share button on Facebook, right? They see and monitor your web browsing behavior, right? Um, and yeah. and based on that, they recommend certain things on Facebook. So you really cannot start, you know, reading uh, <laughs> Breitbart, let's say, and all of a sudden, you know, Facebook headquarters, they're like, oh my God, Jason Schlachter is now, you know, um, a hardline Republican, and we thought he was a complete liberal. We didn't know. Very yeah, send, surprising to us. <laughs> send him the fake news. He's ready for it. Start <laughs> sending him, um, you know, more Breitbart news. But you know, associations but, and but that's you know, real. So but that is real. But but here's yeah, here's here's like, the here's the here's the you know let's let's if if we try to go back to you know the 360 again, um, and the 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 overarching point is that. You can, you will come, you know, we can come up with examples, you know, until tomorrow uh, about the different uses where they raise critical ethical questions and where, you know, there is a need for governance, right? Um, and that's where I think, you know, we, we saw, uh, if we go back to, you know, the, guiding, the guidance memo, um, that's where we saw, I think, you know, uh, I think a, a great, you know, uh, you know, position or act of leadership here. Um, because as I was saying, usually Congress passes a law and then the law, you know, asks the federal agency with the proper jurisdiction to promulgate regulation. Um, today, in the absence of a congressional act that asks, you know, the FTC or the FCC to do, to regulate something specific, um, the White House says, okay, we are, we are going to tell you that here are the principles that the federal agencies or any regulation that you will devise, they have to meet. Um, and I think we kind of covered the various aspects of um, uh, the various you know, principles. And many of them are quite important in, in the sense, but there were two, if you don't mind me, I will talk to them, to them uh, about them uh, kind of quickly as well, because they are a bit important. One is the flexibility uh, aspect, uh, right? It said that um, flexibility means that the regulation cannot should not be too rigid, and that's principally because, as we have explained a lot, and obviously your audience knows that, and you know that very well. Uh, you know that that the technology is moving so fast, and regulating this, although many of us, including me, as we were saying earlier. And a lot of us have, you know, we have an unequivocal, unequivocal sense that regulations are required, an ecosystem of, you know, laws and bounding, you know, rules, what is and should not be done, right, um, is needed. But still, the problem of regulation is very complicated, Right. Because the technology moves so fast, and you know there is a constitutional law argument here, um, I'm, you know I wouldn't care to bother you with. And by the way, I would not be the most expert <laughs> on 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 you know on explaining that aspect, but I have you know a big understanding of what it is. Um, 
but basically there are constitutional limits on certain regulations that are that that deal with things that move too fast you know like technology um, how do you write regulation on you know the technology on certain applications that say where you know a new application can come up tomorrow right and so that's why the sense of flexibility here is required um, to to make sure that it's you know it's detailed enough but also broad enough to cover potential uses so that flexibility aspect is extremely critical but that of course makes you know the task you know slightly harder um, right. the other the other aspect you know the other one of the other principles is um, is is you know cost ba- benefit analysis and risk assessments and that you know to, to talk about you know to to talk to that very shortly uh, that's something that actually the White House the chief technology officer of, of the of the of the United States government, um, Michael Kratzios have mentioned or have you know mentioned that line several times in in his talks or on in, you know on panels and and uh, and so on. He said that we are going to use a uh, if I remember correctly uh, a risk based approach for managing you know AI right. He always used that word a risk based approach. And that's not a novel, you know, that's, that's actually a very common, you know, field, you know, the, the people who are in insurance and you know, evaluating risks and so on in the financial industry, in financial law, you know, risk management is, is a very well-known field, right? Um, in, financial, in the law, you know, in the financial sector and financial services, um, to reduce risks of, you know, uh, because, of course, you, ha- you have a lot of prevalent use of AI, let's say, in, you know, automated trading systems. Um, you have ways to limit uh, risk in, in financial transactions and trading and, and, and things like that. There's risk assessments, risk evaluations, uh, financial stability, and so on. Uh, so there are a lot of tools for risk assessment. And I think more or less... In several sectors, as you know, as, as as we said, you know, the regulations are going to be dependent on sector and vertical. Every federal agency is going to write their own, you know, regulatory measure. It seems like. Um, I mean, it's definitely that's what's going to happen. Um, you can use risk assessment tools in order to reduce risk, um, and that's going to be part of uh, the regulatory requirements. Um, and so yeah. that's also a very critical and useful tool as well. So, yeah. So I think more or less we covered most of the principles, but these <laughs> are like the key, so, you know, the key areas. So Mina, uh, I think we, uh, we will have the distinction of, uh, and I would say this is we, the, the good distinction of having the, the longest podcast that, that will release <laughs> yet. And uh, so, so super excited that we uh, we could talk for so long, and and it just kind of flowed naturally, and 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 talked about all these topics. I do have one more question for you, um, and uh, putting you on the spot a little bit here, but um, I'd like to hear from you. Um, you know, given all the the people and organizations that you're involved in, are there like one or two people that you could mention that uh, that you really uh, think are are the most inspirational or, or, or sort of leading the charge here? Um, like who, who sort of inspires you, uh, to, to, to do more of this or to do it better. Um, and it doesn't have to be anybody that's, you know, super, super famous. Um, but, 
but I'm really curious to hear what you'd say. Oh, that's hard. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, the, the, there are, there are a lot of really impressive people who are in that field. Um, and I, the, the, the people who are really, wow. I'm thinking I keep there, making there are, it, making it real here. I could have told you. I could have told you ahead of time. Hey, think about two people that that inspire you, but I didn't. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to think because there are there are really some really really cool people um, that their work has been you know quite influential, um, and you know there there are different people their their passion and their energy and their 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 you know, stamina and technical knowledge of the topic. Um, I would tell you that uh, I can, I'll think of, a, you know, a couple of names. Uh, so Professor Joanna Bryson, for example, uh, the University of Bath uh, is, 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 is incredible. I've had conversations with her in the past and I've followed her work and her, you know, her uh, talks. She's, she's amazing. Um, Professor Virginia Dignam, she is brilliant as well. Um, I, I I will be remiss if I if I do not mention, um, you know, my very good friend John Havens, who is the executive director of the Global Initiative on Ethics of AI uh, Systems. Uh, John is just an incredibly you know kind person and a you know very just very very concerned about these issues extremely passionate. I have never seen someone who is as passionate and as, you know, kind and empathetic. And frankly, just, you know, knowing the guy working with the guy, it, it, it adds to you every day. It just he's so always elevating the people around him. And so I've had the, the greatest pleasure and privilege to actually work with him. Um, we already said three. I don't know if we're if we're going to continue the list or <laughs> we're going to stop. <laughs> no, it's awesome. I, it's awesome. I, I really wanted to um, to hear who who inspires you, and I think uh, I think that's all great because I mean it is it is such a um, a community effort, and uh, and so I was I was really interested. Um, I will personally look at these people and and you know try to see who they are. Since you've said that, I'm I'm very interested. Um, but yeah, Mina, I mean, I, this was this was a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Oh, by oh, the way, did you I want have, to say some more? To, if you go ahead, I don't want to. No, no, no more, no more, <laughs> no, no more mention of additional people. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I was going to say um, um, the very latest on the discussion of um, uh, policy making, uh, and I think that that brings us to something we said at the very, very top of the podcast. Um, and we just said just now, actually, that the task of policymaking and regulating AI is very, very complicated. Um, something that you're, you know, maybe your audience would have heard of, but one of the most very most recent developments, um, the European Commission that kicked off in December, um, the new European Commission kicked off in December, they were set out. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the 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 you know the head of the commission, um, she had promised 
that within the first 100 days, they will pass a law regulating, you know, various legislative acts, I suppose. And just two days ago, uh, there was a report that uh, on, on Politico in Europe uh, was reported that that promise actually changed now. It's no longer within 100 days we're going to pass a law. It's now within 100 days we're going to come up with potential proposals, you know, reports with proposals. And if we will see a law, it will be by the end of the year. And I'm mentioning that just to underline that the, the, the problem of regulating or legis legislating around, um, you know, AI without proper, you know, forethought and consideration and deliberation, <coughs> excuse me, is, is actually, you know, one of the hardest tasks um, that we have out there. So it's, a, it's interesting to keep watching, you know, the politics of it and the implementation of it and where the U.S. is going to take a leadership position on all that. And I think, you know, with that, I will say that 2020 is going to be a really exciting year uh, with a lot of work, with a lot of uh, momentum. And I am as excited, I am as, you know, energized and encouraged. And I hope anyone that will listen to the podcast would get in touch and see how we can all work together. This is all just work of coalitions and a lot of people, numerous, hundreds of people who are very, very passionate about the topic. And uh, the more energy and the more passion we have in it, the more momentum uh, and impact we can have. So with that, I'll leave it at that. Awesome. Well said. Well said, Mina. Um, and uh, I would encourage our, our listeners, uh, you know, look on LinkedIn if, you're, uh, if you have a LinkedIn profile. Um, look up Mina Hana, follow him. Uh, he's dropping all kind of amazing stuff like, uh, you know, the, the latest um, policies, the latest, um, you know, articles. Um, he's writing his own articles. So, so stay in touch there. I know, Mina, you and I will continue to stay in touch. And maybe at the end of this year, uh, maybe we'll sync back up and, and maybe we can drop another podcast a year from now and kind of look back at all the stuff we said and see if we were uh, on the right path or if everything kind of... <laughs> <laughs> kind yeah. of swerved off, which I would imagine would be the case. We're all we back and see how our prediction, you know, if we, if we, uh, how far we are from that prediction that we just made. <laughs> I know, I know. That'll be the fun of it. All right. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it as well. And, uh, and take care, man. Have a good night. Uh, thank you, Jason. And thank, uh, thank you everyone for listening. All right. Take care. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, thanks for sticking around to the end. Wow, quite the conversation. Uh, leave us feedback if you like the episode. We'd love to get a five-star review. Um, share it with friends. And until next time, take care.